1: to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'm very pleased that we have Catherine Conrad today. Catherine is the president of the Association of University Presses, and if you listen to the New Books Network, and I know you do, you know that we do a lot of university press books. In fact, I think we've done about 5,000, maybe more, maybe close to 6,000 at this point, and we're very happy to do that. We're big supporters of the university presses and what they do. Their Their mission is more or less identical to ours, and that is public education. We try to bring scholarship and good research to the people of the world. So, Catherine, welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Thanks, Marshall. Really happy to be here for University Press Week.
1: That's great. Could you tell us a little bit about
0: yourself?
2: Yes. I um, am a career scholarly publisher. I got the publishing bug, actually, when I was in high school, working for my high school newspaper, but was really fortunate very soon after graduating from college to find a job at the University of Missouri Press in Columbia where I was just, my eyes were opened. I had always thought I might end up working in academia, but University Press Publishing is this amazing bridge between academia and the general public. I worked in marketing at the time, and sharing that scholarship and that research out to general readers was just something I was absolutely passionate about, and stayed there for about seven or eight years before I moved out to the Southwest to Tucson, Arizona, where I came to the University of Arizona Press first as marketing manager and came director became director about four years ago, um, and just absolutely love my work here. Different subject areas. Um, the University of Missouri Press uh, published in some classic university press fields like history and literary studies. That were my academic background, but coming out to Arizona, I had the opportunity to branch out into archaeology and anthropology and a lot of uh, interdisciplinary studies, like indigenous studies and Latinx studies, uh, all of which are just so important.
1: Well, that's just terrific. And now you ha- you're wearing a new hat for your sins. I don't know if it's.
2: <laughs> 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 Can you yes, tell us a little I bit am. about that? Yes, uh, I am this year's president of the Association of University Presses, and it's something I'm really happy to do because this association has been an important part of my career. It is an incredibly collaborative group of professionals. Sometimes we have publishers coming from commercial publishing environments into a university press environment, and they are stunned by how open open everyone is to share information. In a commercial environment, uh, publishers can be very competitive. We're somewhat competitive, too. We compete for authors in university presses, but but our job is really for all of us to succeed, and we don't do that alone. So if I'm publishing a book by an author who was previously published by a different university press, I find the staff in that, at at the other press, just more than happy to share information about how they promoted the book, what worked, how it was to work with the author. Is this author good on radio or this author better uh, giving lectures? Uh, And that's just just such a great environment to work in where we all believe that all boats rise together. Uh, So that's, I would say, one of the hallmarks of our association. But more generally speaking, we're a community of professionals and institutions who have the common goal of publishing and disseminating scholarship and research uh, to really to the highest standards of our profession. And that particularly means uh, peer review, uh, which is the hallmark of university presses, that all of our books are vetted by experts in their fields to ensure that they are up to date and meet the highest standards of scholarship.
1: Uh, That's a terrific summary of what university presses do, and I can attest to the fact that they do, in fact, do that. I think I've published books with four university presses now. Is that right? I can't really remember. Uh, I'm old, uh, but I've had a terrific experience at each one of them, and I'm glad you mentioned peer review, because that really is what sets university press books apart from trade books, I think we can call them. And I've been through the vetting process, the peer review process a number of times. And I would say this about it. It always helped my books. <laughs> yes. It's true. And
2: we've, here we've worked with uh, scholars from Mexico fairly often, and they don't all follow have experience with the same peer review process. And so it's new to them. And they're a little concerned about it. But as they go through the process, always they say, oh, my goodness, this was so helpful. This made my book better.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely true. Because, you know, you think, you know, when you're done with a book, and you probably know this, having worked with lots of authors, you think it's perfect.
2: But it ain't. (laughs) 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 You know, I can ask you a question about working with university presses based on something I've heard. Um, When I work with an author who has published with a Commercial Press before and is now publishing with the University Press, they always tell me what a great experience they had that without exception every individual they worked with cared about their book and was engaged in uh, the content of the book. Was Has that been your experience too? Yeah,
1: and I've, I've published with Commercial Presses as well and they're very good at what they do. Uh, they, they have constraints, I think, and demands that University Presses don't, so the You hear a lot from the marketing people very early, (laughs) Uh (laughs) and and they're really concerned about the title and what's on the cover. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I mean, that's a good thing. But uh, in my University Press experience, they're really concerned about what's between the covers, and they do a great job of paying great attention to that. And the books are, I would call it, they're shepherded from the first moment to the last. And, you know, sometimes I'll even suggest to people that if they're thinking about, especially if they're... uh, authored books before, is to contact an editor early in the process of writing the book and say, you know, like, th- this looks like it would fit your list. Could you help me shape it a little bit so that I can, you know, make the process easier? And, and I've I've done this, and, and it's been successful, and I, I think it's a great way to go about doing things.
2: It is, uh, that's advice we give to young scholars in particular, and our editors spend a lot of time, particularly at academic conferences, having those conversations and asking questions about somebody's research um, and advising whether we might be the best publisher or not, depending on what our areas of specialty are and how that author might want to shape their research going forward.
1: And I think that's a terrific tip, actually, because I didn't know this when I was young. And this was before I'd written my first book. And you go to the conference and there are all those tables and all those publishers and you look at the books and you don't talk to enough people. I think at least I didn't, because I did have a book that was probably of interest to university presses, but, and it ended up being published by one, but I didn't know to talk to editors in a kind of forthright way. Like, this is what I have. Would you be interested in this? And you always get a positive response. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll work with you about these things. They, you know, I always tell early you know, authors that if it's good, it will find a home. There's simply no question about it if it's good, but you got to talk to the people at the presses to, to make them aware of what you're doing.
2: Right. And sometimes research has been in the works for a decade, and a researcher has been sitting with the work themselves for so long. The experience of talking to editors who know books and who know how to shape books is so useful in making that transition of thinking through how I want to take my original groundbreaking research and communicate it the public, and editors are very skilled at doing
1: that. Well, right, and the editors can do this because they've done it many, 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 many times. They've been through this, whereas a first-time author hasn't ever been through it at all, and even a multiple-time author, if I can so speak, hasn't been through it in the way that an editor has who's published hundreds of books. Right, Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about University Press Week?
2: University Press Week was established a number of years ago as an opportunity for university presses to raise awareness of the important work that UPs, as we call ourselves, do. Most people know the books that have been important to them, but they often don't know who published them. We have special books on our shelves, and they have little icons on the spine, but we can't always say off the top of our heads where our favorite books or um, those very influential books came from. And so University Press Week is an opportunity for us to, to call out what we do and what's unique about it. I think university press publishing is more important than ever because university press books are the source Of long-form research that's been vetted and that is of the highest quality and these days when we seem to hear fewer facts in the media than ever before uh, we are the reliable source of that long-form content that's really accessible to many many readers who I think would benefit from seeking out our books on many relevant issues of the day.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you said that because I often call it anti-fake news. <laughs> it's, like, yeah. it's the exact yeah. opposite of fake news. It's been vetted. These people have studied these things for, in some cases, decades. They know everything about what they're talking about. And if you want to go deep, this is really the only place that you can go is to a university yeah. press book. I always think of the New Books Network as it's kind of the it's your first stop. Listen to the author talk about the book and if you like that, then go buy the book and yes. read it because that's really what you know that's the whole intention of the the New Books Network. Could can you talk a little bit more broadly about the role of university presses in I want to say something highfalutin like American democracy or sort of world affairs or the world in general?
2: Well, One thing I often think is that whenever there's something important going on in the world, university press books were there first. So if there is something in the news about immigration, about voting rights, about um, international affairs, you can bet that there's a university press book that has the deep background to that issue where you can go deeper than what you hear in the news, or even in uh, a high-quality sort of long-form magazine content, which, you know, there are some good things out there, but you can really get to the source. Yeah, I I,
1: I think that's right. The granularity of the university press catalog, which must, at this point, amount to hundreds of thousands of books, is incredible. I don't think people realize that you can find pretty much everything there.
2: Right. One of our classic examples that we talk about amongst ourselves is that on 9-11, nobody in the U.S. knew what the Taliban was. But there was a university press book published by Yale called The Taliban, and it became the source of, of knowledge that we needed very quickly to understand what was happening.
1: Right. And you can find these books. And uh, I I know this because I talk to a lot of authors. And if you're in the press, uh, you can actually contact them and they will talk to you. And they will give you the skinny on whatever it is you want to talk about.
2: Absolutely. And I think one interesting thing is that for university presses, marketing books and getting our authors out there is really part of our mission. Yes, it exposes books. And yes, it sells books. But part of our role is to get the scholarship out there, whether that sells a book or not. So we're really passionate about our work. And that's why placing an interview that might sell only a few books still makes us feel fantastic like we've like we've done our job that day
1: well and you know one of the things we've discovered on the new books network is there's a, a vast reservoir of people I don't know if that's a good metaphor reservoir of people <laughs> but <laughs> I can hear my mom like that doesn't work uh, there's a vast number of people who are actually very interested in these things I know that when when I started the new books network this is almost 15 years ago it was just an experiment to see if I could get people <laughs> to listen to professors talk about their books and I didn't know whether it would work or not, but uh, they do. I mean, we do about a million downloads a month now on the New Books Network, and that number is rising all the time. And most of the people that are listening are not academics or graduate students. They're just, I hate to say ordinary people, but they're people who are not in academia, who are interested in these topics, who want to go deep, and you allow them to do that.
2: Right. And it's so, I mean, your network is so great because there aren't, you know, it's harder and harder to get book coverage in the, you know, the traditional media. There aren't Book review pages the way there once were. So, a source like New Book Network is a great place to go. Otherwise, people have to maybe have to do a little more work, but I think the work is worth their effort. You have a subject that you're interested in, there is a university press or two or five that are publishing in that area. My father in law is a Norwegian American and he's an avid reader. And when I need a gift for him, I look to presses like the University of South Dakota Press or Minnesota, Minnesota Historical Society, where they have just fabulous books about Scandinavian. Immigration to the U.S. Those might be histories or memoirs or cookbooks, but I know I have a great source. It's going to be well written. It's going to be well researched. And those are some of my best gifts. And in any, in almost any subject, you know, you want. Um, I love to follow uh, California's food and culture books. Those are books of interest to me. But you can find great things from university presses in a, just such a wide variety of uh, areas.
1: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off. Yeah, I think that's right. I think a lot of people don't know that the presses, although they publish on a wide variety of topics, actually have to use a term of art that publishers use: particular kinds of lists. And I know, for example, that you know, from my own field, which is Russian history. Northern Illinois University Press. And it's not the biggest university press, but they just had this fantastic Russian list. Cornell University Press. I'm, I'm sorry about the other presses I'm not mentioning. Right. <laughs> no, I to everybody. Yeah, there are many. But yeah, but they just had this great Russian list and they specialized in these kinds of books. So, you know if you're interested in Russian stuff, you probably want to get the Cornell University Press catalog. So you can look through it because it's not to say you won't find books on other places. You will. Other presses publish these books. But they have editors that are particularly interested in these fields. And actually, there's a lot of diversification in that way. People covering what they call in marketing verticals, you know, a kind of book. Uh, And you see a lot of this across the university presses. They fill particular niches. And I don't think there's broad awareness of this.
2: I agree. They're highly highly curated lists, and they could be in narrow topics or broad, but Purdue University Press publishes books on the human-animal bond. Fascinating. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, the Ohio University Press has uh, a list in the study of comics and comic books. Really? And their history. So there's just fascinating stuff out there once you start looking. Yeah. And if you had advice— I- I don't know, you may
1: not want to answer this question, but if you had advice for sort of a first-time author, somebody who's a graduate student thinking about writing a book, what kind of advice would you give them about approaching a university press?
2: I would say don't hesitate. I would say start at your academic conference, walk through the tables, as you were saying earlier, and speak to the editor's. Uh, but Even before that, what we often advise is looking at your own bookshelf or uh, what are the books that you've used in your research and what do you see in in those lists of publishers? Do you see a publisher who is coming up over and over again or a third of the books on your list are sort of coming from one or two places? Those might be the places to start. So when you're at that conference, go to those tables, meet the editor, tell them you're working on something, they're they're going to be interested and there's really no, there is no harm in doing that and sooner is better than later, particularly for early career scholars who may be looking at a tenure clock. Book publishing is a slow process and editors want to work with authors to make sure we can work on their schedule and do the best for them. But first, we have to know what their schedule is.
1: Well, I think that's excellent advice, and it always worked for me once I learned it. I would add one thing, and that is get over your fear of the phone. (laughs) yeah. You need to get them on the phone, because that's really where all productive conversations about books happen. Email is okay, but uh, the phone is always better, and they're more than willing to talk to you.
2: That's very true. That's very true. And I would say if you're going to send an email, maybe ask to make a phone appointment.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's funny you mentioned that because when I talk to people about how I use email and things, it's almost always to arrange a phone call. (laughs) right right yeah i just don't have time to read long emails i can get so much done over the phone and these editors are perfectly willing to talk to you i mean and they want to talk to you so uh, you know i encourage people to go early to them get them on the phone tell them what you're doing and go forward from there and you know if somebody says no it's a you know that's that's the end of it then you just go on or maybe they know an editor that will be more interested, and they'll pass you off to that editor
2: and that is a very common thing because because university presses specialize, we want to select the books that we will do the best marketing for because again our mission is to get the book to as many people as possible. And we're not doing anyone favors if we're choosing a book that doesn't match our marketing strengths. So we will very often recommend another university press. And because we're such a collegial community, we can often recommend another editor by name and even make an introduction at
1: times. Yeah, I mean, I think the takeaway is you really want to look for a press that has a list that you admire that is in your field. And that's not too hard to find. Usually the scuttlebutt around the conventions is is about this press or that press, and they do a lot here. And and so if you just keep your ear to the ground, so to say, is that a metaphor, too? I don't even know. Did I make that up? <laughs> <laughs> ear to the ground. It doesn't make any sense.
2: No, that one, I think, would pass through copy editing, Yeah, really. I don't the know. I don't, one,
1: yeah, strike sure. that, please. Um, if you keep your ears open, you'll hear about the presses that are doing things in your field, and you'll be able to go forward with that press. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. So uh, let me broaden the discussion just a little bit uh, to ask you this. And again, I understand that you are... Uh, in in a leadership position among university presses, but this may make you very well able to speak about it. What kind of challenges are university presses facing today?
2: Well, there's some of them are perennial. Um, I think we think a lot about advocacy now because I think our biggest challenge is the misconception that the marketplace can or even should, pay for all of the collective work of university presses. Knowledge is a public good, and together university presses really form the infrastructure that supports this mission-based, not-profit-based dissemination of research. And university press publishing is expensive. There was research done a few years ago that shows that the average scholarly monograph costs anywhere between $30,000 and $50,000 to publish. In very small niche areas, a book would never recover those costs. It's simply not possible, but that doesn't mean they don't have value. These are the building blocks of scholarship and the building blocks of knowledge, and I think collectively we should care that those books can be published because they don't just benefit a few, they really benefit us all. And so I, th- I think that's our biggest challenge.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think that's a very good point because, you know, you don't know when you're going to need it. And to go back to the Al-Qaeda example uh, or the Taliban example, you just don't know when you're going to need that book on the Taliban or whatever it is. I mean, see, we can't predict what we'll need to know. But that reservoir of knowledge, it's important to keep that fundamental research available so that when you need it, it's there.
2: Exactly. And, you know, there are about 151 members of the Association of University Presses, but research and scholarship are being produced at thousands and thousands of institutions. So that's a small number of outlets to do this highly curated work and Again, we have a a small number of institutions participating in the cost of this work, and the marketplace can't always bear the rest of that cost, although Mm -hmm. certainly in some cases it does.
1: Yeah, and we encourage you to buy University Press books. (laughs) <laughs> we can say that.
2: Absolutely. Every you know, time you buy a university press book, you are voting for knowledge. Well, I,
1: that's an excellent metaphor, and it's one I like very much because I tell people, you know, like people will say, well, I you know, the local newspaper, it's, uh, it's in decline. I'm like, do you subscribe? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. (laughs) So you want that author to write more books? You should probably buy that author's books. That would be a good way to do it. You know, it might cost you a little bit, but still, if you want to support that work, you need to throw in for it, just like you do for, you know, that $3 cup of coffee at Starbucks or whatever it is you happen to like. So let me ask you this. What is on the horizon for university presses? What kind of new things are they doing that you'd like to talk about? And I'm thinking particularly of things like a lot of people talk about the transition from, I don't know, it's not a transition, but the addition of eBooks and things such as this. Can you talk a little bit about
2: that? Yeah, and I'm glad you said that um, digital publishing is an addition, not a replacement, because that is truly what we're finding, uh, even as all of us. Are publishing every book in simultaneous uh, digital and print formats, we're not seeing the interest in the print formats go away. In fact, in some cases where publishers are able to publish it in open access format, which I'll we'll talk about in a minute, they're seeing that sales of that print book are still quite high because, in that case, the exposure of the information really does lead people to want to have that in a print form that they can reference in a different way. Print books and digital books have different advantages, searchability versus a certain kind of long form immersive reading that you get with print books. So, so yes, it's an addition. And uh, that that in, in and of itself is a bit of a challenge in that adding digital publishing as a new cost without really adding a new revenue stream. Nevertheless, the university, presses have really been leaders in digital publishing going back to, you know, the early 2000s when the University of Virginia Press started their, um, their project called Rotunda, which collects all kinds of original documents in American history. More recently, we have projects that are creating open source publishing platforms that will allow enhancements to to the written content, more multimedia kinds of integration. These require a lot of funding, but the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation has been generous in its support of university presses who are exploring these areas. So there's a project called Manifold, sponsored by the University of Minnesota Press. That's something that we at Arizona have adopted for a project we have called Open Arizona. Fulcrum is a project out of the University of Michigan Press. And libraries and Stanford University Press has a program called SUP Digital that I believe has published about four uh, multimedia type works already. So those are big, I mean, it's not quite fair to call that a growth area. I think our job is to be poised for where scholarship goes. And scholarship itself may not know exactly what it needs right now in terms of dissemination. So we're trying to anticipate that, working closely with scholars and faculty members to pilot these kinds of things. And, and I'm, we're fortunate that there are, there are several options right now. Because for a smaller press like us, who doesn't want to build it, we can now adopt this open source platform, Manifold, to do our own experimentation and open access. Yeah, I
1: I like the fact that you said you don't really know what you need, but you need to be prepared for it. And I know that in, in terms of podcasting, when I got into it 15 years ago, uh, it wasn't really a thing. <laughs> and and, and I, I kind of did it as an experiment. And now it's, uh, I think I can probably say it's a major medium, but nobody really anticipated this. But luckily, right. luckily there's the infrastructure for it now. It took a long time to develop. But, you know, it, 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 the development of that infrastructure, it was kind of laying in wait. People knew how to do it. And then it evolved, and it serves, you know, all of the listeners to the New Books Network uh, really very well. I want to, I want to say something. It's more of a statement than a question, but it can turn into a question, as statements often magically do. It is not free to produce an ebook, and in fact, it, it can be quite expensive. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Absolutely. Those costs that I cited earlier—that the the average cost of publishing a scholarly monograph ranged from $30,000 to $50,000. Those costs did not include printing. That's the cost of preparing a piece of content through the acquisitions process, the development phase, the peer review and revision process, copy editing, typesetting, proofreading, um, and marketing just for a digital PDF that we could then post on the internet if we could. So the costs do not get cheaper to do that essential work that makes the book.
1: Mm -hmm. And there are even complications there because I've done this long enough. I'm an old guy. So I have files on my uh, really quite modern, actually, it's about five-year-old, Macintosh computer that I can no longer open. (laughs) yeah i i have I have scoured the web looking for programs that will open these documents that I have and i they they're dead as far as I can tell and you have to word against that I mean you have to have a way to make sure that they are going to be operable in well a hundred years <laughs>
2: Yes, and that's why we care a lot about how we produce these books, and some presses, including ours, have moved to a different kind of workflow. And not to get too technical, we build our books in XML now, which gives us the ability to have a file that is as future-proof as we can make it, but it then lets us go from the XML format into multiple digital formats, including some that probably... Will be invented in the future. Yeah. So that's definitely something we think about.
1: We could uh, tire the listeners by having a long and boring discussion about markup languages, but I don't think we'll do that. Let's not. Let's not do that. Okay. <laughs> markup languages are one of my favorite things, and most people don't know what they are, and they don't need to, and that's good because we're taking right. care of it. <laughs> that's
2: Right. And hey, when we the last time we moved our office uh, a few years back, we found drawers full of um, those old zip disks.
1: Oh yeah. Oh people yeah, zip drives. In. Yeah, oh, I know it's, it's exactly yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah, they are blue. <laughs> That's what I yeah. remember so, about them.
2: Fortunately, we have our colleagues in the university library here who have a digital lab that can help us with um, with any of those old formats should we need them.
1: Digital archaeology, you might call it. How do I get? Yeah, that? yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah. I'm glad those people. Forensic. They do, yeah.
1: I should contact those people. Maybe they can open some of my files. I don't know. Right. <laughs> so let's turn to another topic, which I know is discussed a lot in, in the press, and you hear a lot of chatter about it on Twitter and other things, and that is, and you mentioned it, and that is open access. Um, I, I I just would love to hear your feelings about open access. And I understand, again, you know, you're in a leadership position at a, at a large organization that, that deals with these things. Um, so if you have a few words to tell people about open access and the open access movement, that would be great.
2: Sure. So in case anybody doesn't know, open access is the concept that books would be free to read. What we know, especially as publishers, is that books are not free to make, but under an open access model, the cost of publication would be funded by institutions or grants, but but otherwise than by readers and libraries. I think almost any scholarly publisher would tell you that if we could publish every book open access, uh, we would love to. We would, more than anything, we want the, the books that we publish to have impact. And there is some truth to open access books being able to reach more people, particularly around the world and in countries that do not have the means at their institutional libraries to purchase scholarly material, or for scholars working outside of institutions, uh, at NGOs or other types of organizations who would benefit from access to scholarship but simply don't have it because they're not attached to a university. Nevertheless, there is no easy answer to being able to publish open access. A number of our members are experimenting. Um, There are a couple of pilot projects. There's uh, an international project called Knowledge Unlatched. That's trying a funding model under which university libraries would pledge money toward a collection of books. And when the appropriate um, amount, you know, funding amount had been reached, all of those books will be unlatched for, for the world, not just for the participating libraries. University of California Press has a program that they're funding in a different way, there, we have a member press that is Amherst is um, and Lever Press, two of our members, are both open access only publishers. So people are looking for ways to make this work. I don't think it's right for all books, but it is a problem that our members are seeking to solve because there are some real advantages I mean, it, it for is, the reader. Yeah, it, it is
1: a really tough problem because, as you say, it costs quite a bit of money to produce one of these books. I mean, if you just set aside the research costs that are involved, which are very high, then you actually have to make the book and that's expensive. And then you have to distribute the book and that's not free either. And in order to continue to do this, you need a certain amount of predictability in terms of, now I sound like a business guy, revenue streams. And if you don't have that, then it becomes kind of a dicey proposition. And so it's a It's a certified hard problem, as they'd say in mathematics. It's a, yeah, there's no easy solution here.
2: Absolutely. And I would say also that university presses believe deeply in the marketing work that we do, because you can post something online and it can certainly be found when somebody knows they want to look for it or knows that they need it. But the work that university press marketing departments do in terms of Metadata enhancement to increase that discoverability in connecting authors with interviewers and speaking engagements to get the scholarship out there. That is also really critical for discoverability and the sometimes immeasurable impact of a work in reaching people and and helping them make informed decisions about important issues.
1: And I think a lot of people uh, don't realize. The fact that, well, maybe they do, that, and I've learned this because I've been doing this podcasting thing and been on the web forever now. Actually, it's not so forever. Uh, but but as long as the web's been around, if you put something on the internet and you don't publicize it, nobody will ever find it. I mean, right. ever, no. ever. Because <laughs> I talk to a lot of people who want to start podcasts, and the first thing I say to them is, well, you have to publicize it. There's no, there's no two ways about it. it. No one will ever find your right. podcast. And the same is true of books. You will, you will not find them. You're too busy. The search engines uh, work in a certain way, and you kind of have to know how to tweak them. You have to get on Twitter. You have to have Facebook pages. You have to, uh, you know, I often tell authors who say, you know, how do I get publicity? Because we do, you know, we help publicize books, you know, you, you might even hire a publicist, but that's really the way it has to happen. You have to bring it to people's attention. And there's no substitute for that. It's just a cost of doing business. If If you want to reach people, you have to find them. And that's really yep. what publicists do. And God love them.
2: <laughs> exactly. Guerrilla marketing.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's good. And that's what we try to do here at the New Books Network, because we know that a lot of people that listen to the interviews that we produce don't know about these books, but they use us to find them. And they think, well, you know, the New Books Network, they do a lot of different things. And if I go there, then I may find something that is going to be of interest to me. And we are divided into these 91 verticals, these 91 different subjects. So you can if you're interested in anthropology or East Asian studies or psychoanalysis, you can go there and you'll can hear an author talk about a new book. And then maybe you'll buy the book or get the book in some other way. And and you know, it's really kind of an adjunct to what you do because we try to make the books that you produce kind of findable and accessible for people. And and we've had, you know, really great luck in doing that. And we're very happy to continue to do it. So Let me ask this. So how long is your tenure as president? Just a year. Just a year. A year (laughs) is a a long time to be the president of anything. That's what I would say. (laughs) That's very good. Well, uh, Catherine, it's been uh, really wonderful talking to you, and I want to congratulate you on your presidency, and I want to congratulate you on uh, all the success that you've had at the University of Arizona Press, and I want to wish you the best in your uh, tenure there at the American Association of University Presses. Let's just say one last time that uh, University Press Week begins on November 3rd and ends on November 9th. And I want to wish you the best.
2: Well, thanks, Marshall. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And. Thanks so much for all your work at the New Books Network and helping readers find this important university press content. It's much well, appreciated by us all.
1: Yeah, well, it's it's to end this love fest. It's 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 really our pleasure to do that. Well, thanks for talking to us today.
2: You bet. Thanks, Marshall. Okay.
1: Bye.